0: Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table every 15 days. Today, I'm going to be talking with Nathan Miller. Nathan worked for a reinsurance company, and after that company was purchased by ING for $6 billion, he played a key role in transitioning its operations onto ING's enterprise resource planning system. Enabled by Lex Controls and unchecked authority to distribute funds, Nathan began embezzling money to pay off personal debt. What started as an $1,100 check to a credit card spiraled into an $8.5 million fraud over the next four years. It was only a co-worker's suspicion that brought the fraud to an end. After being caught, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 97 months in federal prison. Welcome, Nathan. I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I really want to focus on, as part of this episode, on what can internal auditors learn about your case and what can internal auditors do better to detect fraud but obviously, for those who you know may not be familiar with your story, with uh, with the background of what happened, could you provide a high-level overview just so people can have can have an idea of what happened and uh, you know how how long it took and uh, all of the ins and outs of, of the of the case?
1: Okay. Yeah. So just kind of quickly. So you know when I started with the company, realized our life insurance company. The first thing that fell into place was on day one when I was, you know, when I was educated in the world of, um, you know, passwords and user IDs in a corporate setting. Um, the, the person who trained me in, she explained to me how you, you have to change your password every 30 days. And so this is how I do my password. I use the, you know, the my initials the month and the year. And I thought, well, that's perfect. Like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, you know, so my, my initial password was NJM OCT 97. Cause I started there in October of 97. But what that meant in practice was that I knew her password every month for the rest of my time there, because our password was the same in every, you know, every system we used, it was just her initials versus my initials. And so that was kind of the kickoff to, you know, um, the first kind of thing that fell into place that allowed me to do what I did years down the road. Um, So, you know, I start there, start working my way up, um, being promoted, gaining an understanding of processes and how things work, gaining more responsibility, you know, gaining more trust, never on a personal level thinking that I would ever, you know, commit fraud, let alone do something unethical. But to me, it was always like, I'm an honest person. I'd never do anything wrong. And so I never set out to to do what I did in any way. Um these things just kept kind of falling in place. The you know the the fraud triangle is very real and those things the 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 tools that I used to commit the fraud all fell into place without me looking for them and, and that password was the first one. So fast forward um you know ING purchases realized star and part of the conversion you know they they came into the us and bought all these life insurance companies and so once they had done all these purchases in i think it was 2000 ing america's had all these new life insurance companies all using different um erp systems all these admin systems feeding in you know claim systems premium systems all these things so they put together a big team of, of accountants from every every one of these new life insurance companies And they put us on a a team basically to roll out PeopleSoft to all their new entities. And so as part of that team, you know, we were expected to give our input in functionality we needed from PeopleSoft, stuff we were used to, stuff, you know, our wants, our needs, those kind of things. We were also expected to learn PeopleSoft. And so we did tons of testing. We did tons of training. Um, Out of that program, the next things that fell into place, um, you know, that helped lead to my fraud, where um, out of that, I became an expert in PeopleSoft, especially how we were going to use it within ING. The trouble was I took a bunch of external training, too. And what that external training did is it taught me how to use parts of PeopleSoft that we weren't going to use and that people didn't know we were going to use. And so I was using things that that internal ING probably auditors didn't know existed. So they didn't know what to look for. I was using kind of a back door. And I learned that all externally. The other thing with that project was, I was given power user access, so I had different access to PeopleSoft as far as you know report writing, going into canned reports and changing them. And so, when it came time, you know, auditors were asking for reports. If they ask for a report where my fraud's involved, I I know how to go into that report change things around and manipulate it so I can basically exclude my fraud from those reports, but they're can reports. Nobody with without power user access could do those things, but I had that access. And so those were the things that happened from that project that, that again, contributed toward my fraud. So the next piece that fell into place was um, after we had gone live with PeopleSoft, uh, this was christmas of 2001 my boss came into my office and and at this time you know i had i had been promoted to accounting manager and my main function within our division was managing the cash processes and so being the main liaison with treasury with ap with our banks um, and just overseeing all the processes around cash within our division um my boss came in one day and and for regulatory purposes we need to we needed to send 50 million dollars to our london subsidiary and you know it's two o'clock on a Friday, and right at the end of the year, and this money needs to get out and go. And so, at the time, you know, we send money out all the time, but individual wires for fifty million dollars—that's not something that we were normally dealing with. And so, when I got that request to send that money out, I had to figure out who could approve it. And so, you know, I, I open up our our approval matrix, which is just a spreadsheet from AP of everybody in ING with any any approval authority. I'm looking down that list, trying to find somebody with, you know, unlimited or over $50 million of approval. And I found my own name on that list. And it said that I had check authority to approve checks up to $250,000. So did my, so did my coworker whose password I knew. So at that time I recognized, um, well, this is a big screw up. Like there's no way I should ever have approval authority. At the time, my thought was, You know, I think subconsciously, maybe I was like, well, I should fix that, but I'm not going to. Um, At the time, I thought, I need to get this money sent out. I'll, I'll figure that out later. So instead of calling AP and saying, hey, revoke this authority right now, I pushed that aside. I found somebody to approve that wire, got the $50 million sent out. But on my ride home that day, it really hit me that I could steal money. You know, the fact that me and my coworker whose password I knew, we both had request and approval authority on checks. I could, I could request a check as myself and approve it as her or vice versa. So at that time, thought was the same. I'm an honest person. I'd never do that. So I didn't do the right thing. I didn't revoke that authority. I didn't go to work the next day and like steal money, but... For the next you know year and a half, it was always in my mind that I have the ability to steal money. And I think it would be pretty easy. You know, I knew all the processes around money and reconciliations and, and how everything worked by that point. You know, I'd been working there for six years at this point. So it wasn't like I just started. So that was kind of the last thing that fell into place. And um, you know, as far as that, that always surprised me too. Like, how did I end up on an approval list? And I think that the process was. Within our old admin system, me and my coworker, we had we had entry approval, but we didn't have any cash approval. But I think they they moved those roles over into PeopleSoft and automatically clicked something that because we had this approver access in an admin system, it clicked as approver access within PeopleSoft. And so we were, we were given this approval, but there was there was nothing backing it up. So I was always curious how how did accounts payable not notice that people that they had no paperwork on, no actual approval authority how did we get approval authority? And that went on for years. So at that point, I think, okay, I, I, I could do this, but I'm not going to. And then, you know, fast forward a year and a half, um, you know, the, the quick answer, why did I do it? The quick answer is my life was a hundred percent about appearances in life. And my, my life's goal was to create the appearance of happiness and success in my life without ever caring about being happy and, you know, truly successful. And so, Um, fast forward to, to early 2003, my wife was pregnant at the time. We're going to have a baby. Um, and obviously, you know, it's a long story, but the, the short story is I decided the only, you know, I convinced myself the only way to, to put my family in a position for my wife to stay home with our daughter and me to, you know, pay our bills and pay all this debt, other debt that I had was to, um, you know, steal money and get out of debt. So that's kind of the short answer. Um, So once I decided to do it, it was just, okay, how am I going to do it? Who am I going to cut the checks to? Um, My, what I call phase one of my fraud was um, cutting checks directly to a credit card I had, you know, credit card company with the same name as one of the life insurance companies we did business with. All I cared about was that the payee on PeopleSoft didn't raise any red flags and so cutting a check to a company with the same name as a a company we did business with it was just going to look like a you know a small commission payment and so um, my credit card company was fine with receiving checks from my employer to pay my credit card bill which i had verified with them so that's what i did i set off like you know like in the intro my first fraudulent check was eleven hundred dollars went into Peoplesoft logged in as myself, requested an $1,100 check, logged out, logged right back in as my coworker, approved the check, picked it up the next day. And again, there was a lot more manipulations in here, you know, who picked up checks, who approved the check registrar, all that stuff. But I was, I was the backup for everything that happened and, You know, in a small department, not a lot of separation of duties, and a ton of trust. I could basically manipulate things to make sure I was the one in the mix on kind of everything. And that's, it it was really that basic. And so, you know, I mailed off that check to my credit card company, cleared the bank, you know, hit my credit card statement, piece of cake. So over that first summer, I ended up stealing $83,000, getting out of debt, you know, paying off debt, nobody knew I had. My wife didn't know about it. My friends, my family, nobody knew about it, paid off my school loans, credit cards, my car, like everything in my life, nobody knew about. So there's no cover up at home, the cover-up at work was I was just writing off these checks. As I was cutting these checks, the offsetting debit to each check request was a write-off account because there's a, there obviously there's the writing off large amounts is not that weird in our business, the way that we did things. And so writing off $83,000 over a, a summer was not in any way material or even noticeable. So, um, but with phase two or with phase one, um, if you remember, I had a, a check go missing, you know, over that summer, week after week after week, I was sitting, I was cutting fraudulent checks, mailing them off, paying down debt, consolidating, paying down debt. Um, and every time it worked the same. Day two, it hit my credit card. Day three, cleared the bank. I could see that on Peoplesoft. So by the end of the summer, a check goes missing. Two weeks later, that same check shows up in an envelope to me from Accounts Payable because I forgot to put my account information on the check. And when AP got the check back, they looked it up online. They saw that I had requested that payment and they sent it back to me. And so at that point, I know I don't, I don't think, I've never been an auditor, but I don't think that's the right way to handle things. Um, but for for me, that was like, okay, this is your sign from God, like it's time to stop this. You know, I was increasingly paranoid. I always thought I was gonna get caught. So I stopped, you know, I avoided that check. I stopped stealing. I knew I had to make it through the year-end audit without those payments being, you know, pulled randomly and you know, give us the backup for this check kind of thing. So, made it through the year-end audit and then for me, you know, that's when I like really lost my mind. Um by March of 2004, um I was sitting at my desk thinking about my fraud and all that I had done and I was like, you know, the fear of being caught had really worn off in those those 6 months. My daughter was born. You know, financially speaking, we're in a good place. Um, I started thinking about the fraud again and thinking, you know, I, I did all that work to steal the money and I I didn't even do anything with it. I just paid off debt, you know, like I never bought a thing. And so I was like, man, how could I do this and, and really have some fun with it? And so to me, that's when like the rails really went off, you know, went off the train tracks because that's when I really started thinking about stealing money and just like buying things and the the true like greedy part of the fraud, you know, Um And so i decided with phase two i didn't want to i didn't want to use the credit card way that i did it because i gave up control of the process by mailing that check off and so um you know what i consider like like embezzlement 101 is i just set up a company with the same name as a, a broker we did business with um you know i got a federal id number i got a you know i filed a name with the secretary of state i got a po box a business bank account I had a business on paper and it was solely set up to steal money. And so, um, you know, that took about 10 days to to get everything set up at that time. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to do it again. And so in early April 2004, my first fraudulent check of of what I call phase two was about $27,000. Same process, requested as myself, pick it up the next day. I had the check with me, uh, that Saturday, you know, it's the end of tax season. I was working, I was still working, you know, nights and weekends at the CPA firm. I worked that out after school, in addition to my job at, at ING. And so I go to, you know, I go to my local bank to deposit that check. And throughout the whole process, I never thought, I never thought it was going to work every, at every point I thought they're going to catch me. They're going to stop me, you know, and so I go to deposit that twenty-seven thousand dollars check, and and to look at it from the standpoint that I went into this bank earlier this week and opened an, a business account with fifty dollars, and now I have a twenty-seven thousand dollars check that I'm putting in the bank. To me, that seemed crazy, um, but they took the check, deposited, gave me the receipt, money was available instantly, and I went home and I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to spend this money on, but you know I'll figure it out. And so you know from there, the the um, the fraud just grew and grew and grew. It was so easy. You know, they talk about the slippery slope and stuff and it, it was just so, it was so easy to keep doing and keep growing. It really was like a snowball effect um, as the fraud progressed. And, and, you know, the fraud went on for another, from that point, three and a half years. Um, You know, 2006 was really the, the, the biggest year of my fraud. I got to the point looking at it, it's, So I kept meticulous records of my fraud. So I have spreadsheets. I have a spreadsheet of every check that I stole by date. So I can see, you know, how the check amounts grew, how much I stole when. And, and, you know, I have as a, as an accountant, I love spreadsheets and I have spreadsheets of my entire fraud basically. But, you know, that $1,100 check that I stole in 2003 by 2006, I was stealing 400,000 a week at points, you know, I stole $4.3 million in 2006.
0: So um, that was definitely the big year for sure. Yeah. So by
1: 2007, you know, my, my life had spiraled out of control. You know, I was separated from my wife. I wasn't talking to friends or family anymore on a personal level, like emotionally, psychologically, I was, I just like ruined myself, the anxiety and the fear and the guilt of everything I'd done, everything that I knew was going to happen. I was just crumbling. Um, and so by 2007, I stopped the whole time shocked that nobody had ever found it because you know in that world and and we can get into it if you want to but the the cover-up at work the cover-up of the fraud the, the account that i held the offsetting debit in with phase two it's an account that was reconciled by internal auditors you know they looked at my work twice a year external auditors twice a year we had sarbanes oxy control testing people in at that point digging through my stuff we had you know, state insurance examiners every other year and every single one of those people went through this account. And so it was just shocking to me that it continued to, to go undetected in addition to all the other red flags and stuff going on in my life at that time. But
0: um, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll definitely get to that. I, I I do have a question that's, you know, specifically related to all the auditors that you interacted with. But before we get there, I do want to, you cover so many control weaknesses you know the super user access the lack of segregation of duties you know the approval matrix approval limit not being proper you know the password uh, the best practices for password like thinking about all of those controls is there any one of them that you can you can kind of point out hey yeah this was this was it you know this is what allow me to commit the fraud. And then the follow-up question to that is, if that control weakness wasn't in place, do you think you would still somehow pursue the fraud just because of how much you knew, like how much information you had gotten from this external training?
1: I I don't think, I'll answer the second one first. I don't think I would have gone looking for this had all these pieces not just like basically slapped me in the face. You know, it was just, piece after piece after piece fell into place to, to allow this to happen. And I guess first I would have thought that knowing, like knowing my coworkers password, that's a huge thing, you know, just in general, I'd never could have done what I did without our passwords, but it was almost like a different time in, in our department. Had I, you know, had the other things fall into place and I thought, oh, I need somebody else's password. My coworker whose password I knew, she also, she worked from home two days a week, and she kept a spreadsheet of all of her passwords in her drawer. And so, you know, working remotely in the early 2000s, it wasn't like now. It was log right. in and load them and put in your little code and hope that it worked out, hope you get into the system. And so there was times where... It was just kind of a it was a normal thing for us to log in as each other and do each other's work. And so that would have popped up time and time again, because she might say, I need this, you know, I need this done by three o'clock today. She's working from home. It's not working. Can you go into my drawer and log in as me and get this done? And so that was that was common for us. There was things that I did that I was the only person who knew how to or had the access to do it in our admin system. And so if I was any day I was gone, I had to have somebody log in as me to do it, you know. And from the down to, I had coworkers who kept their passwords on a post-it note on their screen. You know, so that piece—that's one-on-one, right? <laughs> right, a lot, of, a lot of just like blaringly obvious things. Um, some of the other stuff, um, all of it seems really basic to me. The giving authority to somebody and not having. Sign paperwork that says they should have signing authority. It seems like that's something that should be audited on a consistent basis. Who are your signers? And, you know, can we see the paperwork again? I'm looking at everything as never having audited. And so that is a world that I learned. I learned in practice what you guys did and how to deter you and manipulate you from finding things, but I never, understood from your standpoint, exactly what you're doing. I just knew procedurally after going through year yeah. after year, after year of audit from the same people um, internally and then the external auditors, what they
0: do and what they need and what they want. Um, yeah. You, 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 so, knew enough, you knew enough of, about, you know, how to, how to respond to them so that they wouldn't, you know, ask more questions, I guess. Right. And so
1: I don't think there was just one, it was, it, it's kind of how everything fell into place. There were just so many control weaknesses. Um, and I didn't even, I couldn't have told you at that time what a control weakness was. And, you know, um, but it was, it was, and part of it was environment, you know, the environment, it wasn't like a, an environment from like a fraudulent standpoint, like, you know, do whatever, but it was very much an environment of get your work done and kind of worry about right or wrong later. You know, and like a a quick example of that is, you know, the normal process for doing a journal entry is you would code up your journal entry, have it approved before you enter it into the system. And then we got to the point where we would keep our journal book of, you know, paper, the paper version of every journal entry. And when the auditors asked for those books, my boss would sign every journal entry, you know, at audit time. Yeah, you didn't spend anything before. And so it's just little things like that. Like right, right. You know, get your job done first. We don't we're not not telling you to cut corners and do anything shady, just get your job, job done and, and kind of worry about right or wrong later. And so yeah, yeah. That was a bit of the environment um of just um you know getting stuff done. And so yeah, yeah. I think that's very common. Thing, I think another thing is within within insurance and within reinsurance. So you have an admin system, but in the insurance world, everything needs to be tracked at a contract level. And so everybody has these admin systems. There's all of these admin systems, the software is offered, but everybody, they either build them homegrown or they buy them and tweak them. And so here's how this system is supposed to work. It doesn't work that way. So it was also very much like, Shortcuts and workarounds was a way of life. To get our job done, we have to do this. We should be able to do this, this, and this, but this step doesn't work because of system limitations. So here's how we have to do things. And so, you know, from an audit perspective, if 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 you came to me and you said, "How do you do this process?" I would tell you how it was supposed to be done. That's not how we did it. Right. Uh, I know how how it was supposed to be done, and I could explain that to you. But you know, it was just stuff like that where there's a lot of things that. We weren't doing things maliciously we were just trying to get our job done but it was those those shortcuts and workarounds that that helped me manipulate the system you know in addition to all those other things that allowed me to to do the things i did
0: yeah yeah i think that's very common people are usually like you know very busy and the mentality is just get it done and you know kind of like your example your boss would sign the paperwork later that's that's a great example of yeah we'll, we'll worry about you know making it look right later, but yeah. going going back to your your comment that you interacted with so many auditors right with internal auditors, external auditors with you know uh, governmental auditors, was there anyone who ever got close to figuring out the fraud before it was discovered, uh, or were they kind of easy to fool?
1: Um maybe we'll kind of, I don't know, maybe it makes more sense to go into that. There's definitely an answer to this question. Maybe it makes more sense to quickly go through just how I hit it. And then kind of my procedure to, to get it past you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that will kind of lead into um, that question. Cause that's, that's definitely uh that's definitely a, a relevant and valid question, you know, depending on the year. So, so what, when I decided that I couldn't just write off my fraud anymore I knew that I was going to have to stick it into an account and the, the account that I chose to put it into was the most confusing ugly reconciliation that I did on a monthly basis and so we had a, a subsidiary in Canada and so that meant we had an office in Canada employees in Canada all the all the money flow was in Canada so premiums were paid out of, you know received in that office commissions refunds, claims paid out of that office, assets backing the reserves in Canada were in Canada, in Canadian investments, everything was in Canada. All that activity had to get onto PeopleSoft in the US. Um, So there's three pieces to the Canadian business. There's the contract related stuff, premiums, claims, commissions, refunds. That stuff all goes through our admin system. They have access to our admin system up there. They do all the processing. It flows through to PeopleSoft just like our stuff does. The second piece is their general expenses. So anything that they paid for up there, they would send me their financials. They send me all like all this financial stuff on a monthly basis, you know, check registers, bank statements, trial balances, everything. So I tracked their general expenses. I made an entry to PeopleSoft for the Canadian expenses on a monthly basis. The third piece was the investment activity. And so let's say we had $200 million up in Canada All of the money was in Canadian T-bills and bonds. On a monthly basis, they could buy and sell bonds. They would receive interest payments. So they would send me all that activity in Canadian dollars. I put together an exhibit translating it from Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars. Then I forward that exhibit to investment accounting in Atlanta, and they make the entries to PeopleSoft for it. So those are the three pieces. In addition to that, I had to reconcile the bank account, which on PeopleSoft, we had one ledger account for, for a Canadian bank account but we had five actual bank accounts in Canada, three in Canadian dollars and two in US dollars. So I was reconciling five accounts and two currencies into one ledger account. So messy reconciliation is never gonna tie out. There's always gonna be foreign exchange difference. Um, And just just a messy business. Nobody really understood all the flows of everything, how everything worked, everything went together from the bank rack to all the activity and everything. So I'm like, I had started working on that my first year there, you know, by year six, I was the only person that really understood that reconciliation and how it all like came together. So, I thought, perfect. As I'm stealing money, I'm going to put the offsetting debit into that. So then I have two issues. Every month I have to reconcile this bank account that's going to have a growing debit, you know, unexplained debit in it, which I would call the fraudulent debit, the growing debit. Um, so I need to get that past my boss every month and auditors, you know, twice a month, two quarters, two quarters a year year-end at the very least, probably, you know, 630 as well. I have to get that past them. The other thing I have to do is figure out how to make that go away. Because at the end of my fraud, there'd be eight and a half million dollar debits sitting there that I could never leave. You know, I'd have to reconcile that account the rest of my life or the next person to look at it's going to figure it out. And so the first problem, again, from doing this reconciliation for all those years, I knew how my boss was going to verify my work. I knew that Off quarter and months, the only person who was going to check my reconciliation was my boss. And I knew that he was going to verify the ledger balance on my reconciliation, the PeopleSoft ledger balance off a query I gave him because I knew that he didn't know how to run queries. And so (laughs) he was going to verify my work with my own work. And so all I would do is I would run a query of the balance. Let's say $3 million of that balance is fraud. I run the, the query in PeopleSoft. At that point, I can download it into Excel. And I can subtract off the $3 million and print it out. And he's going to verify my reconciliation to a fake balance. At quarter end, I knew that he as well as auditors are going to verify that ledger balance from a trial balance. So I couldn't fake the balance, but I could fake a reconciling item. So it's kind of the flip. So back to our investment activity. Every quarter end, investment accounting made an entry to PeopleSoft for all the investment activity across ING America. So thousands of lines long representing hundreds of millions of dollars, you know. So I would run a query of that specific entry. I would download it into Excel. I need a $3 million reconciling item. I'm going to look through this thing, find a $3 million entry. I'm in Excel, so I can just type over my my business unit, my account number. I can make it look like investment accounting made the entry to our account in error and that it's going to, you know, it's going to reverse out next month. And um, I would just put it on the reconciliation as a, you know, and this was very common is that you could make, you could make entries across business units and people's off So if, if somebody got our money, instead of sending us the cash, they would make an entry to move the cash to us. And they always made the entries wrong. And so on a monthly basis, on our reconciliations, we had, outstanding items that were reconciling items that were because people made their entries wrong and right. so this, this wasn't uncommon was yeah not uncommon at all yeah. you know three million dollars that was the the figure was large but to say that investment accounting screwed up they made an entry to to our business unit instead of security life of denver it'll you know it's a reversing entry it's fixed already um to me the the big thing was are you going to talk to the internal audit staff and security lab in Denver and verify that they have the offsetting reconciling item, you know, is the big CPA firm that's auditing us, is their team in Minneapolis going to contact the team in Denver and say, we have this big reconciling item on this thing. What they're telling me is that this entry should have gone to you. So you should have, you should have activity that there's no entry for. They have an entry that there's no activity for, but they never, that never happened. So it was just as basic as not having a boss or auditors who had access to um, verify my work, you know, independently verify my work, run the queries themselves. I never yeah. had a I never had an auditor sit with me and say, run this query in front of me. It, it was just that, it was just that basic, you know, because yeah. they, they would accept Excel versions of them and I could make them say whatever I wanted and nobody ever verified them. So that was a big good. risk it took. Yeah, it was a huge risk. Everything I did, I was just like feeling things out and seeing is is this going to work or not. And and I saw it as a risk every time. But you know, once I tried it and it worked, then that was that was how I was going to do things going forward. So then the next piece is how do I make it go away? You know, I couldn't write it off anymore. I couldn't expense with these huge amounts that were growing. I had to figure out how to make that debit go away. So back to the Canadian package. So. I knew with with the Canadian investment activity that I got, so it could be a significant amount of money because all of our investments were ten million Canadian dollar T bills and bonds. And so, on a monthly basis, you know, you might we might buy and sell ten million Canadian, you know, ten million dollars in bonds, buy sell buy sell. Well, that's forty million Canadian dollars converting that to U.S. dollars. So the way that I was supposed to convert that was. Um, figure out the average monthly exchange rate of Canadian dollars to U S dollars, and then convert it at that average. Well, I put my exhibit together. I have all my activity. I have my average monthly exchange rate. I know what my entry should be now. Well, what if I adjust the rates depending on whether it's a debit or credit? What if I lower the rate for all the debits and raise the rate for all the credits? I'm going to be, every credit's going to be higher than it should be. Every debit's going to be lower than it should be. So over time that's going to eat away at that debit balance, you know? And so Again, there was a big risk there because you look at this exhibit, there's two $20 million debits and two $20 million or two $10 million debits and two $10 million credits. The debits have one rate, the credits have another rate. It's very obvious looking at that. Why are the debits $9.1 million and the credits are $9.3 million, you know, So yeah. to my eye, I was like, this is super obvious. But I had to risk that the person that made those entries in, Atlanta, in, you know, investment accounting in Atlanta wasn't going to question my work. She was just going to key it in how I gave it to her. And so again, when I sent the first one, I was like, if she comes back and says, why are these different? I'd say, Oh, I just screwed up. I forgot to, you know, but she never came back. So for four years, every single, every single exhibit I sent down to them was like that every debit was lower than it should be. And every credit was higher than it should be. And so over that time frame, I, I got rid of about five and a half million dollars of that debit out there, so I was basically underreporting investment accounting in our, our Canadian sub by just manipulating that rate over and over and over. So that's the second piece of it. And so back to the auditors, you know, how to did the auditors get close? So the process with auditors was always number one, not in not our internal audit staff, but our external audit staff. I always got the junior person. To do all the bank and cash stuff, so I thought that was a little weird. But it was always a fresh-faced, twenty-two-year-old, twenty-three-year-old, right out of school, their first audit job. They didn't know, you know, they anything. didn't know <laughs> anything. No offense, you don't know anything at that age, so. <laughs> right. um, and so, what I would do is, hundred percent of the time, auditors would come back and say, "Can you explain this to us? Can you explain the Canadian package to us? Not just the reconciliation. Can you explain everything to us?" And so. I would lay out all of my things. So I, I had all these different reports and everything. And so in my reconciliation process, I color-coded highlighters like pink meant this and blue meant this and green. And so I used like six different colors. And so I would lay everything out and I would sit the auditor down next to me and I would start talking them through what was what and what was what. And I would just start, you know, just pointing. And, and I would I would just talk in circles until I confused them. And literally, you know, my, my goal was to, just prey on a lack of confidence in that. Are they going to come back and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't right. understand. You know, that's, that's a real confident play to say, I don't understand it. Tell me what you're doing. It was more so um, you know, glazed over eyes. I don't know. In the end, what I knew is I knew what their work papers looked like. I knew that all they needed was a reasonable explanation of why this looks weird. So I could give them, here's what I'd write if it was me tell them what to write they'd write it in and they would move on to the next thing. And so again, it was just from going through audit after audit after audit with, with these people knowing what they were looking for, knowing what they wanted, knowing their timing, their process, you know, what it was always the same. It was always the same work papers. It was always the same stuff. And so I would confuse them. And then I would give them the answer they needed to, to feel comfortable to move on to the next thing. And so there was varying degrees of how many questions are they going to ask at that meeting? You know, um, some people just took what I said and moved. Some people asked follow-up questions. I think one time I got to the point where if she asked one more question, I don't have an answer, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So someone got close. (laughs) Yeah. Some, some people got closer than others, but there, there was one time where I was sweating real bad. Like she's, She's on the right track, but um,
0: she didn't ask that next question, and so she didn't ask the follow-up question. No, nope. that's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, like you, you touched a really good point, and it's something that I remember from you know the presentations that you do. That you know they they send the the new auditors out there, and, and obviously they're afraid of asking questions because they're afraid of looking stupid. And we in audit, we say there's no stupid question. And that couldn't be further from the truth, you know. Uh, But I, I mean, what, what suggestion or what recommendation would you have to internal auditors in general, to kind of not be afraid to ask that follow up question? And a follow-up question to that is what general recommend general recommendations do you have for internal audit departments in general to help them detect fraud you know maybe send someone who's a little more senior i don't know what what ideas come to mind yeah i mean
1: it i i speak a lot to college kids who are about to go on to this world and and i stress to them that they have no idea what they're walking into you know, and I didn't as a 22 year old going to my first accounting job either. Like you have to be extremely knowledgeable and confident. And, um, I think it's, it's, you're not admitting defeat by saying, I don't know what's going on, but that's something you just, you have to be willing to, to admit when you don't understand something and ask for help, which, which, I understand. Nobody wants to go to their, you know, new boss and say, I don't know what this guy's talking about. I don't understand. And I know that I've, I've run into this time and time again, that, um, how many auditors or fraud examiners have actually discovered fraud. And if they did, how many of them thought it was just their screw up and they didn't understand what was going on. You know, and I think that that's a super common thing. And so, uh, you know, I think that, um, I think that introducing the reality of that situation to young auditors is really important. You know, I do, I do, I do a lot of speaking to, to, to young auditors. I've heard them called green beans before, um, <laughs> but just here's, here's the truth. Here's the reality is it's not, you know, it's not some monster in the corner. It's the nice guy who's answering your questions at the fraud. You know, it's like just having that, you, know, you don't want people to think that everybody's dirty or something, but, You know, you really have to, you just, you can't believe what people say, you know, you need to, you know, that professional skepticism and independent verification, however you can get it, um, you know, and I think a lot of things have changed on a a procedural level. I hear over and over, well, you wouldn't be able to get away with that anymore, you know, from the standpoint that I thought it was weird from an IT audit standpoint. Does nobody think it's weird that constantly at my workstation, So I'm logging in and out as different people, you know, something like that. That seems to me like something that should show up somewhere or um, my my stuff was so, so basic in that um, it all came down to auditors accepting copies of source documents. So let's look at it from this standpoint. Two weeks before you're in office, you give me a list of what you need. I can fake anything if you tell me what you want. You give me two weeks. I can make reports, right. say whatever you want. I can cut and paste. I could, I can do anything. Well, you take my, the fact that I have a copy machine and I have power user access. You ask me for a report that says this. I'm going to give you a report that says it. I can make it look like I ran it eight months ago. But it mine all came down to copies of source documents versus actual source documents and excel versions of queries versus a hard copy of queries or somebody just looking over my shoulder and so it's hard for me to it's hard for me to suggest to somebody you know here's here's this amazing idea and how to discover fraud for mine it was the most basic stuff in the world like watch me run a query. You know, when I, when I verified my people's bank reconciliations, the first thing I did is reran the queries and made sure their queries were right. If somebody had ever done that to me, my fraud would have come up right away, you know? And so um, it, it really is just, it's, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of, you know, really complicated stuff going out there. My stuff was not complicated. It was super basic, you know? And, and I feel like, I feel like, The biggest issue with the controls in, in, in our department was um, I was the one who was responsible for all of them, you know, like controls, not just having them, but, but doing them, you know, doing them timely, but the review process too. every control, I managed every control, a lot of the controls that I was supposed to do on a daily basis, I didn't do until you asked for them. And if you asked for them, I could fake them. You know, and so it's just it was just a bunch of really basic stuff throughout the process that that, you know, two more questions, uh, a look over my shoulder, a, a true like, you know, in Minnesota, we call it Minnesota. Nice. You know, we don't think we don't believe you, but yes, yes, you know, it, it's yeah. all really, really basic stuff. There was just it just it just to this day, I'm still shocked that that it wasn't discovered right away because it was all it was also also embezzlement 101 and also basic how i did it and how i covered it up so
0: yeah yeah i think that's a good example the one that you said about running the query you know i definitely not accepting you know things as like a you know the copy of a document instead of like just go and ask for the 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 original right or you know just sit with the person so those those right. are good good ideas uh well i really appreciate your time uh on the podcast nathan i do want to give you the opportunity uh to kind of share what what you've been up to lately and what's the best way for people to connect with you yeah so you know
1: i went to prison in 09 i got out in in 2014 and you know it took a long time to get back to for things to get normal. You know, I still don't know if they're normal after seven and a half years or whatever it is. I've been out. Um, I've worked in a lot of different areas, landscaping. I've been an Uber driver. I've, you know, um, I started speaking. So my speaking began, if you remember when I was in prison, I spoke about 60 times, um, in the Duluth community while I was incarcerated. And it just kind of followed me out where, for a while, that's all I was doing was speaking professionally. And then, you know, when COVID hit, it became a virtual world of speaking and just the whole speaking environment changed and stuff. And so um I stumbled into a job. A, a guy that I was in prison with called me up almost a year ago, a year ago last week. And one of the companies he had started with some partners was blowing up and they needed accounting help. And so I'm an accountant again. I got a great accounting job, you know, in a company where the, everybody knows my past. And obviously you set up an environment like this. I don't have access to bank accounts. I don't have, I don't do that stuff. Um, But I have a lot of knowledge and experience in every area of, you know, financial reporting controls, tax stuff. So they put me to work where it makes sense, you know, um, And I love it. You know, I don't take for granted the fact that I get to do do this again. Um, And just my life has become very basic. I got out of, you know, I got out of prison. I hooked back up with, you know, I got to get back into my children's lives and um, I got remarried a few years ago and we have two young kids. And so now I have an 18 year old, a 14 year old, a four year old, and my little boy turns two uh, next week or in two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, Congrats. (laughs) Thanks. And so, you know, like, life's never back to normal. You know, I owe restitution. I still owe $7.5 million. So financially speaking, you know, the, they monitor my, my finances and, and, um, you know, they, they do a good job of making sure that they're not trying to cripple you and make sure you can live and pay your child support and and whatnot. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, a large chunk of my income goes to my restitution, which is where it should go. Um, so it's, it's all, I'm always reminded, you know, I still run into, there's, there's just stuff that is hard in life as a convicted felon. And you know, it, it is what it is, but I've tried to make the most of, of my situation, use my story to give back. It continues to be super rewarding. Um, if anybody can learn anything from my story, then to me that that's it's worth my time, you know, um, so I still do some speaking. I don't. I don't actively look for it anymore, but I still get a lot of speaking work, and um, I still love it. You know, it was, it was one of the biggest, most therapeutic, rewarding things that happened to me in prison was was going out and speaking and telling my story, um, helping me work through the feelings, the emotions, um, work towards being a more honest person, a more transparent person, um, and continuing to do it it continues continues to be just super rewarding and and i still get those you know that feeling in my gut when i talk about the nasty parts and the but it's also a constant reminder of you know you do good things and good things happen and and that's also been the case with my speaking and so um you know people find me i have a website i'm on linkedin people track me down however they can track me down and um yeah i just I, i'm I really it's always weird for me to say this but after everything that happened it's sad that it took such a such a nasty downfall and and for me to hurt so many people for me to figure it out but what happened um you know i needed i needed prison and i needed that reset button and i needed to be to be shown what's important in life and and now you know i don't take things for granted anymore i i'm grateful for what that experience gave me you know I can't, I can't turn back the clock, but I can, I can do the right thing
0: now, and so that's kind of how
1: I live my life now.
0: Yeah, a lot of lessons learned. I mean, it's, I've, I've watched you, uh, uh, I've seen you at a, at a conference uh, down in Memphis. I really enjoyed the presentation. I, I also, uh, you were part of a virtual fraud seminar a couple of years ago that I also also enjoy. So. A lot of lessons there learn and also that you know like you mentioned you can kind of share the story and hope that we can all learn from it and so i think that's you know turning turning into something positive so i think that's definitely the most important thing so appreciate appreciate you uh taking the time to uh talk to me nathan uh so just wishing you the best yeah i appreciate it i appreciate i appreciate
1: the platform it was a, it was a it was a fun interview